This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. All right, welcome back. This is Leadership in Action, SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. You are on Channel 132 right now. And we want to thank you for spending this time with us. This is a special edition of Leadership in Action, uh, celebrating the 2019 Lippmann Family Prize honorees. And we are uh, just delighted to welcome our next guest uh, into the studio here. Lisa Moon is the president and CEO of the Global Food Banking Network, also known as GFN. And the Global Food Banking... <laughs> that might be why it's GFN. The Global Food Banking Network is an international nonprofit uh, based in Chicago that nourishes the world's hungry through launching and strengthening food banks in more than 30 countries. So many of our listeners, um, you've probably aware of food banks that are in your local communities. And this is um, an idea that that GFN has really focused on expanding worldwide and, and also creating uh, an important network among these food banks. So last year, GFN member food banks rescued and redirected food to more than 9 million people facing hunger. Um, Lisa, welcome to our show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so let, let me start out and say congratulations. Um, thank you for the work that, that you do and that the Global Food Banking Network does uh, on behalf of the world's hungry. And congratulations for um, being honored as one of this year's Lippmann Family Prize honorees. It's truly a pleasure to be here, and we're really excited about the partnership with Wharton and Penn as a result of this prize. Absolutely. And um, if you would, maybe just to get us started here, um, let's think about um, the intersection of you as the, the leader of GF. Um, and also GFN's uh, genesis. And so mm-hmm. at, at what point um, do you intersect with the Global Food Banking Network? Sure. And, and how did how did you come to find each other? So GFN was founded in 2006, and mm-hmm. it was founded by um, food banking organizations based in the States, in Canada, Argentina, and Mexico. And really, because there was a realization that as you had so many people moving into the middle class in Latin America and Asia Pacific region, mm-hmm. that a lot of people in those communities were still being left behind. They were still struggling with hunger. And the food banking model, which was uh, founded in the United States, but then had spread at that point to at least a dozen other countries, um, really was a community-based approach to tackling hunger using local resources. So the organization had a whole decade of mm-hmm. doing amazing things before I joined them in 2016. Um, and I really came to it after working for um, about eight years focusing on rural development in Africa, mm-hmm. looking a lot at how our food system is producing um, and how that production is quite inequitable. But what attracted me, I think, to the work that GFN does is that they're dealing with the whole other side of the supply chain, Mm -hmm. that even if we produce enough for everyone globally to have a meal, you have to be able to get that food to them. So you really have to be thinking about logistics, and food banks are a critical part Mm -hmm. of that. And and for you, Lisa, um, I'd be curious what... I back up another step in your in your own story, what drew you to rural development work, um, and then what did you take from that chapter of your career um, and really apply to the role that you have now at GFN? 
Sure. So from the rural development perspective, I kind of fell into it. I was I was a policy wonk <laughs> working mainly in, in defense issues. Um, and uh, in the mid-2000s, especially around the time that the U.S. was engaged in the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. uh, as part of Reconstruction, so much of that was focused on the importance of agriculture. Sure. You know, um, the majority of the world's poor live in these rural communities, and those people are facing significant barriers to access mm-hmm. um, and to tools to improve their livelihoods. And so um, when I shifted over to that full time, it was just natural to begin uh, focusing predominantly in sub-Saharan Africa, where you have such a, uh, the poverty problem there is so related to, to rural rural poverty. Um, I think in terms of what I learned through that experience is that these communities, these people, whether you live in a low-income country or high-income country, they are really, really passionate about Mm -hmm. improving their own situations and the situations of their neighbors. They have the capabilities, um, uh, most of the time the resources in their communities to to do it themselves, but a lot of times they just, you know, need access to good knowledge and um, in some cases resources. So I developed a lot of respect for the incredible people that want to be building strong communities wherever right. they happen to live. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Lisa, very <laughs> nice to have a chance to talk with you here in person in studio. So, Lisa, could you talk a little bit about just the scale? I think, as Jeff said at the top, we have some familiarity with a, with a food bank, but how does this work at the scale that you're, that you're describing? Sure. So food banking organizations are, are locally based. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, the the food banks that we serve, which are located in 30 countries, they're all independent organizations. Um, depending on where they are in their development, they may focus on distribution in just a certain city within a country or a certain city mm-hmm. in the surrounding rural areas. Or in some other places, it could be actually a collection of food banks distributed throughout the country that are pulled together in a national network. So um, the partners that we work with, we provide, again, peer-to-peer knowledge exchange, technical support, um, financial and partnership resources, uh, and an opportunity really for them to learn what is working in another place that they could scale more quickly in their communities to help achieve their missions more effectively. Good. Could you just address a sub-point on health and safety and food distribution? So the most critical, <laughs> anytime you're distributing yeah, food, food right. at, whether we're eating here in Philadelphia at, yeah. a, at a fine restaurant or mm-hmm. you're, you're, um, you're at a, a meal delivery service in, in Nairobi, it's really important that food be handled with absolute care. Yeah. Um, now, food banks, of course, the reason why they're able to operate so efficiently is because they're sourcing a lot of the meals they distribute through a surplus stream. So that's wholesome, edible food mm-hmm. that for whatever reason has lost its commercial value that would normally be thrown away. They're recovering that and redistributing it. Um, And because of that, a key part of what GFN does, about 20% of our work focuses all around standards. Mm -hmm. How do you handle Mm -hmm. food safely? How do you make sure the food that is being distributed is in the exact condition that you and I would go to the grocery store and purchase? How do you make sure that it's getting to the clients that uh, that are in need, that it's not diverted in the supply chain? So we actually offer a certification to all of our members that is reviewed every two years to ensure that they have those best practices in place. So when people donate or when people get access to food from a food bank, they can do it with confidence. Great. Thank you. Mike? Lisa, I've got a couple questions on how you operate, and I'm thinking in the countries where you're based, there's probably a whole network of organizations, some UN, local, non-government mm-hmm. organizations, U.S. organizations, uh, 
that are uh, volunteer organizations. Just talk a bit about how a local food bank might work with, um, let's make it Save the Children or other uh, U.S. Agency for International Development to get their job done. What's that look like on the ground? Uh, there's a couple of different ways that it, it can work, depending on what the opportunities are in that country. Sometimes uh, aid agencies, whether it be USAID, sometimes it's Chinese aid. Um, they yeah. actually donate commodities that the food bank then distributes through their distribution network. Um, another uh, way that they potentially work with some of the more international NGOs that we might be aware of, like a care, like the Save the Children, um, is that they might provide meals that save and care, then use in their programmatic activities, providing that budget-relieving support for those mm-hmm. partners. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different creative ways these partnerships get formed. Great. A uh, related question is this. As you decide to work with a particular food bank, my guess is you vet a little bit, a little due diligence, <laughs> and this is, in a sense, a, a kind of a management question here. As you look at food banks, which are already up and running, and they have come to you or you've gone to them to provide technical assistance, as you look at the food bank, I presume you make some judgment as to whether they are a, of, a, of a stature and of a method that's going to work or not before you choose to go in. So. Anyway, talk about that if you would. Yeah, so so we really believe that that we're a small organization. So we're 20 employees. Our budget this year is $6.6 million. So so we're really entrepreneurial and small. And so we really are focused on, on what we do best. And mm-hmm. our sweet spot is really supporting organizations that have just been established and but mm-hmm. have the basics in place. They have a legal entity already there. They have a founder. They have a board of directors. Um, and then uh, once they reach out to us in that regard, we do have a vetting process where they also provide information about kind of their plans, uh, what their business operations look like, the aspirations of where they're going. We have an internal vetting process that we have before we decide mutually to work together. Just a, a one, one final piece on that is you've looked at probably a number of such organizations over the years. Uh, kind of stepping back from that, what makes them look good from your standpoint and how they're run, how they're managed, how they're led? Most important thing is executive and board leadership, um, because at the end of the day, organizations aren't entities that they're run by people. And yeah. um, and if the executive director with the support of the board has the vision, the tenacity, you know, the the attitude that they really want to be learning and growing, it's it's the most critical um, component to success in food banking and, and most likely in a lot of other parts of the nonprofit sector as well. Look at that, Mike. Leadership hmm. in action. Uh, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. It's a, he might have been leading the witness. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, let me remind our listeners that I'm Jeff Klein, and you're listening to a special edition of Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 1. 32. We are in the studio uh, right now. It's Mike Yuseem and Greenhall and I. And our guest in this half hour is Lisa Moon, who is the president and CEO of the Global Food Banking Network, one of this year's Lippman Family Prize honorees. And you are listening to our 2019 special edition two-hour extravaganza celebrating <laughs> the Lippman Family Prize uh, and the great work of the honoree organizations. So, Lisa, as I ask you this next question, I, I, I am going to admit that um, it's just mostly selfishly for me because as I'm hearing you describe your work, there are some parallels to the way in which I feel um, you know, I, I lead our leadership program. Um, and that is we're a smaller staff, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're maybe a hair bigger than you in terms of staff. 
But the number of partners that we have and the number of stakeholders and the number of supporters and the number of graduates um, is this ever-expanding <laughs> pie. And so I, I wonder, as you think about your own role as a CEO, um, how much of the work that you do is public-facing? How much of it is you know, in this stakeholder partnership mm-hmm. management how much is leading the organization? I know it all adds up to 150 <laughs> percent. I do know that part, but I just wonder how you think of uh, how yeah. you think of your role. Sure. No, I think it's a great question. Um, I definitely feel like anytime you. So, so I've been in my role for about three years now. Mm-hmm. So definitely in the first year, um, outside of fundraising and meeting our partners that make all the work that we do possible. Sure. Um, a big part of what I focused on, I would say 75% of the time was building trust with the network. You know, mm-hmm. we are an organization that only exercises impact through mm-hmm. influence. Uh, you know, our ability to um, to be supportive is entirely contingent on us really understanding in a meaningful way the aspirations of our partners. And so um, so that was a really big component of, of what I do and, uh, and still do. I would say probably 30 to 40% of my mm-hmm. time is really on that. Um, and then in terms of external stakeholders, absolutely. I mean, one of the great things about the food banking models, it's really a way to bring together corporate partners as well as yeah. other charitable partners, and even in some cases, government, depending on, on how um, how the community is working. And so kind of thinking about how do you cultivate that stakeholder network, maintain it, inspire them towards a vision is something that requires um, a significant amount of time, of course, and energy. Yeah. So. I'm, I'm with you on both the time and the energy <laughs> pieces of that. Um, what have you found when, when you think about um, supporters, you think about volunteer, you know, volunteers, um, how have you found it's it's best to both establish the relationship, but, but, you know, more importantly, sustain it over time? Well, I think that that everyone who we kind of initially approach is really interested in helping in yeah. some way. I mean, every, this is one of the great things about working in nonprofit, especially in the human services sector. People come with such great intentions. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really about um, we're all about partnerships. I mean, mm-hmm. the work, the mission is too large and um, to to think about kind of these volunteer engagements as one off. So mm-hmm. especially when we think about how we engage stakeholders, we have a three to five year horizon, um, really thinking, too, about what's motivating them to come to the table yeah. so we can customize our partnership in a way where we're both getting um, great value from it, if that makes sense. Of course. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I have a follow up. Jeff, I, you, read, you, you read my mind. Mm. Uh and building on Jeff's question and building, Lisa, on your earlier comment, when you're looking at partners, you're looking in particular at the leadership and the relationship to the board. So Jeff asked you about your own leadership. Can I ask you about relationship? I'm assuming, tell me if I'm right, to your board. Mm-hmm. In terms of in terms of my role, exactly. With the, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so talk about the relationship between your organization and the board. Absolutely. So so we are governed um, by an independent board of fourteen directors. Uh, the model is policy governance. And when I began at the organization, the board had actually just under started a governance restructure. So I had the great, great privilege that so many <laughs> CEOs do not get of uh, being a partner and a support to the board as they really considered their their leadership model. So they're um, very strategic, focusing predominantly on future vision for the organization, and um, and you know. Uh, myself as a leader of the management team obviously aids them in that, but is really you know focused mm-hmm. on execution. So um, I think we have a great, great partnership. Good. And just one follow-up, and then I'll, over to Mike. Uh, 14 members, 14 directors. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about, um, you know, who, who are they? 
What kind of expertise do they bring to the board? Sure. So so I would say about half of them have been involved in food banking in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Our current board chair was actually the founder of Food Forward South Africa. It was one of the first food banks that GFN helped support the launch of at the start of the organization. So he's known, obviously, food banking intimately, especially in a middle-income country, known about GFN now for nearly a decade. We do have a couple of folks from, from the corporate sector whose companies have been very committed to the cause of food banking across the world. Our vice chair is from Grant Thornton. I mean, they provide in-kind services, support in dozens of countries um, where, where we're working. Uh, and then we have other experts from uh, that have a lot of experience either in the hunger sector and the philanthropic se- sector. Catherine Bertini, the former executive director of the World Food Program, is, is part, of, um, part of our group. We also have Martine Burt, who's based in Paraguay. He runs a really interesting social enterprise um, focused specifically on improving the lives of those impoverished. So it's it's a skills-based board, if that makes right. sense. Yeah, thank you. So, Mike. Lisa, uh, really wonderful to hear you describe it as a skills-based and value-adding board, which is more than we can is say about some, uh, some boards. So that, that, that's great. I've got a, a different question about kind of the two-way street that probably describes the world you're in. Uh, and you know well in development, a lot of ideas are brought into an area, but a lot of ideas come out of an area that affect the – the, the support rendering organization. And as you have worked with the local food banks, my guess is a lot of the ideas you have now have been drawn from them. So describe a couple, and then when you get these ideas, just talk a little bit about transference. How do you move great ideas that might emerge in Mozambique to still a different area? Well, I would argue that all of the good ideas come from the network. Um, because, yeah. uh, And to give you a sense, I think, of, of two that we're really focused on right now, um, as the, you know, when you're thinking about food recovery, there used to be a lot of focus on food manufacturing, but that part of the supply chain is just getting so much more efficient. So mm-hmm. over the past five years, we've seen this trend of trying to figure out, should we be recovering more food from retail sources or from agricultural sources? You know, with nearly a third of all of the agricultural product going to going to landfill unnecessarily. A big focus has been in ag, and one of our partners in northern Colombia, we think, has really cracked the egg on this. They have designed a program that works with, you know, hundreds of farmers near Medellin. They're able to build very trustful relationships. It's all fresh produce. They recover more than 78 kinds of fruits and vegetables and distribute it to their service area. And this is now a model that we're supporting deployment of in South Africa and Argentina and in Peru. Um, the second thing is that, you know, food banking it, traditionally in the United States is a bit of a capital intensive, um, uh, capital intensive endeavor. And in many, most other countries, you don't have the type of philanthropic resources available to support that type of model, the warehousing, the trucking. And, and one could argue maybe we shouldn't even be thinking that way anymore with technology. Um, and so our partner actually in the UK was one of the first in the world to pioneer a virtual approach to food banking. So instead, of having your trucking traditionally picking up the food, moving it to the warehouse, moving it back out to the agencies and then distributing it. They actually just pair the agencies mm-hmm. directly with the donor. So you're eliminating a key part of the, the supply chain there. It's had enormous success. And now we're looking at eight additional countries that are considering adopting that. Just a, a quick and final follow-up on that. I work with an organization that has a very similar model. <clears throat> and one thing that this organization has done is to arrange for those, let's make it your case, at uh, a given food bank to visit a another food bank, another country, to kind of see how it's done and to bring ideas back. 
Uh, you've got something like that in your repertoire? We do. We're very fortunate to be able yeah. to do that. So we have an annual meeting where we bring together all of our network at a food bank um, based in the network. We actually had it two weeks ago in London. Um, and then we do also kind of specific peer-to-peer visits uh, right. to focus on things like agricultural recovery and the virtual model. How does it actually work in practice? Lisa, um, as you look to the future, uh, I'd be curious about what what you're excited about, what you think is on the horizon, both for the Global Food Banking Network, but um, also more generally what's on the horizon um, in terms of the, the fight against global hunger. These are easy questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's softballs, right at the end of the. Yeah. Right at the end of the uh, first of all, I think this is such an exciting time to be working in food, mm-hmm. and um, uh, because our food system is more productive, more abundant, mm-hmm. more diverse than it has ever been in human history. So, from that perspective, it's it's I think a really great time to be. We have a really great opportunity to grapple with these issues, but of course, at the same time, you have the Earth is becoming far more populated. We're expected. Yeah. To rise to nine billion by 2050, you have a lot of people moving into the middle class. They're wanting to eat different types of food, so I think we're seeing a radical transformation in our food system, and we'll continue to do so over the next couple mm. of decades. But that means that we have an opportunity to get some of the things right that we haven't gotten right in the past. Mm. Um, and so I think that's really uh, what what excites me. Um, mm-hmm. I think that you're starting to see traction on these issues that you would not have seen five years ago, ten years ago. Right. To give you a sense, at our, our last meeting in London, uh, Dave Lewis who's the chair um, of Tesco Group. Uh, He's also the chair of a group called Champions 12.3, which Mm -hmm. they're all committed to having food loss and waste by 2030. Um, And it's it's involved dozens of businesses that have made commitments Mm -hmm. to how they can be reducing that kind of wastefulness in the supply chain. That's something that that would have been unheard of, you know, even just Mm -hmm. five years ago. Um, I definitely think, too, from from a, a food banking model perspective, we are getting so much interest, predominantly in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. This next year, we're planning to run two food bank incubator programs that will touch five to seven countries in those regions to try to help those founders and entrepreneurs um, do what they want to do in their communities, help their neighbors so much faster than they would have been able to do otherwise. And so I think kind of we're, I, we feel like we're at this precipice of mm-hmm. an opportunity to really help change the food system to make it more equitable. And uh, maybe just a, a related question around that. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I've learned through my association with, with Penn, but more importantly, the Lippmann Family Prize, is, you know, how multifaceted many of these problems are and, and how they require not just the strong leadership of, of nonprofit organizations like the Global Food Banking Network, but also the participation of businesses, as you're talking about, the support and participation of governments. And so how do you see the sectors interacting um, around this question of of hunger um, right now? <laughs> um, I think there's a lot more that they could be doing mm-hmm. together. Um, a big uh, – uh, something we've seen our, our partners become so much more ad- active on in the past couple of years is how they engage specifically with government. I mean, look, at the end of the day, you do not want your primary social safety net 
to be a charitable feeding system. That is right. not the end mm-hmm. goal here. Right. At its best, it's a stopgap measure, you know, to provide short-term relief. But these problems are structural problems. And like you were yeah. saying, this is about how can we make food more affordable to mm-hmm. people so you can have them able to access it with mm-hmm. their current incomes. And also, how can you correct some of the policy faults that um, that really undergird these problems? And yeah. so I, I, food banks, because of the work they do, they really see the invisible hungry in a community. And I think that we as food bankers have a responsibility to uh, to make sure that that need um, that injustice is made known to mm-hmm. the policy players and to the supply chain as much as we can so we can correct that mm-hmm. so I see a much bigger um, focus on advocacy mm-hmm. um, for for our network in the years ahead all right and I'm going to ask you uh, a closing question here and it's a, a bit of a detour but I I think with returns us to the the beginning of the conversation and that is you know this you, you talked about how this wasn't your first career working mm-hmm. you know first in rural development and also um, you know now within your role as, as CEO, CEO of the global food banking network and so for our listeners who you know have have heard your story have heard the stories of the other you know Lipman family prize honorees and they're interested in getting involved either in a in a, a partial way or making a, a full-time career change what advice would you have for them about how to explore that kind of transition? Um, I think I think you need to do a lot of different things. Right. <laughs> um, and I, I started my career, like I said, in defense policy. Yeah. I was actually working on nuclear policy, yeah. and um, and even though my graduate work is all in that, I, I quickly learned that I that I didn't love weapons as much as I thought that I did. Right. So, um, and I was just fortunate, though. You know, anytime you're working in these fields, you're developing skills, you're developing mm-hmm. project management skills, yeah. you're learning how to develop networks, which is so important um, to any role these days, and all those things are transferred. And so, um, so I think doing a lot of different things early on, getting a set of diverse experience, and being really open to any opportunity that comes your way. Mm-hmm. Because in the first twenty-five years of your career, you have a lot of flexibility. You don't have to commit to anything for the long haul. So, All right, we're still it's okay, great. then, folks. Yes, we're yeah, okay. exactly. <laughs> Everyone here still has years in front of them. Yeah. We're only been at this one five yeah. years, so we're, we're totally gold. All right, for our listeners, Lisa, um, as as we start to wrap up here, um, how can they find out more about the Global Food Banking Network? Uh, we encourage you to go to our website, which okay. is at www.foodbanking.org. All right. Well, th- we want to say um, thank you again. And congratulations yes. on being selected as one of the honorees for the Lippman Family Prize. Thanks so much for having me and for this honor. Great. Of course. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.